around the time of the Wall Street crash. So people are not afraid of like socialism taking their stuff. They're、mm-hmm. worried about Wall Street taking their stuff. You know, their families very likely suffered. They probably entered a bad job market. So for millennials, the sort of stigma attached to socialism is not really there. What they've experienced is capitalism working extremely poorly for them. That's Sarah Leonard, senior editor at the Nation magazine, contributing editor to Dissent and the New Inquiry, and co-editor with Bhaskar Sankara of a collection of essays titled "The Future We Want: Radical Ideas for a New Century." Today we hear Sarah's take on this year's election. We also hear what she thinks about a variety of debates going on among Democrats and on the left in the wake of Trump's victory. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this is Common Ground. Given the result of this year's presidential election, it seems that the Democratic Party will have to make a variety of decisions in the coming months and years, not just about its strategy, but also about its core commitments. Will, for instance, the widespread appeal of Bernie Sanders' populism, as well as some of his socially democratic policies, ultimately pull the Democratic Party to the left? Sarah Leonard, our guest today, is senior editor at the Nation magazine. She's one of a few leading writers and intellectuals who are advancing not just a left's critique of mainstream American politics, but who are also laying out a program of left solutions. Many of these writers, Sarah Leonard included, came of age well after the Cold War and defined themselves as socialists. Today, we hear from Sarah about what that term might mean in contemporary American politics. We also hear her position on a number of issues currently being discussed and debated among liberals and on the left. Finally, Sarah describes why she thinks many voters in her and my generation will continue to move left in the coming years. To be sure, we cover a lot of ground in this interview, despite the fact that we were under some time constraints. I'm thankful to Sarah for putting her answers very directly and eloquently, and I'm sorry to you for having to cut this episode just a bit short. But I will add after the interview some places you can go, not just to read Sarah's work, but also to read a bit about her. So all that and more is coming up in this episode of Common Ground. So, Sarah Leonard, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and talking with me. Thank you for having me. So let's start by talking about the thing that everyone has been talking about since November eighth, the election of Donald Trump. One thing that is so astounding or befuddling、uh, is how everyone, basically in the mainstream media, the pundits, the pollsters, and the, the commentators, got this election so wrong.、Uh, most people on the center left didn't just think Clinton would win;、uh, they thought she would win by a huge margin. Why do you suppose so many people got this election wrong, and what do you think their misreading indicates? Well, it's helpful to think about this in a wider context. We've actually been getting a lot of polling wrong lately, notably in the UK around the last election and around Brexit. And I think that the sort of I think the commentator class or the pundit class, the people who are in charge of keeping us informed, but increasingly, you know, do a sort of entertainment version of that informing, actually have a fair bit of consensus among themselves about what's reasonable and what's possible within the span of American politics. And Trump just isn't really included in that. Trump seemed too extreme. He's doing everything you're not supposed to do in a campaign, and people really did believe that that would torpedo him. 
When in fact, that was a really big misreading of where the country's at as a whole, which is that people feel like the elite, so-called, or the people running government are quite corrupt. Mm. And so what a lot of people wanted was to just sort of throw a bomb in that and say, you know, we're going to disrupt the system as it's working right now. And we don't, we actually really like that Trump is not playing by the rules, right? And so I think this sort of actual elite consensus really betrayed us in understanding what was really going on and what was possible within the current span of American politics. You're a writer and thinker on the left. You're senior editor at The Nation as well as a contributing editor at Dissent and The New Inquiry. What do you in particular take from Clinton's loss as well as the move, especially in the Rust Belt, away from the Democratic Party and apparently toward Trumpism. Is this a repudiation of the establishment, so-called? Is it a backlash against globalism? Is it the triumph of a kind of nativism or nationalism? Is it all of these things, none of them? What, what, what's your reading on this? Well, a few things happened. It would be crazy to narrow it down to only one thing, of course. Um, and so, a, a few things. So, first, I mean, in a way, it was a very reasonable backlash against a governing elite that is not serving people really well. So, for example, just since 2008, since the recession, um, people have not fully recovered, right? So we, we're not in a recession anymore, but people are working you know, two jobs to make ends meet, or they're making lower wages than they were before, or they've gone from a job that in their mind was sort of respectable um, to something that isn't, like working at Walmart. And so people are pretty dissatisfied and pretty unhappy and are looking for something to change. At the same time, Congress, as we know, has never been more deadlocked. Nothing gets through. It's totally ridiculous. So what we have is, on one hand, quite a lot of need, and on the other hand, no ability to meet that need. And that's a super combustible combination. And so we had people thinking, how do I bust that up? Like, how do we get any of the things we need with this totally dysfunctional, seemingly corrupt system? And Trump seemed like that thing. Now, I mean, there are broader forces, I think, one thing the left warned about decades ago was that unfettered globalization was going to produce a nationalist backlash because it's okay if you know the type of work that you do in some particular community changes over time generation to generation but when one person in the span of one life has to accommodate themselves to five different ways of working, you're going to see a huge amount of frustration and pushback against the changes that are happening. And now people are reacting to that. And suddenly people who are big proponents of globalization are feeling the repercussions of this sort of utopian idea they pushed that free trade was just going to get us all on a higher plane. So much has been made and discussed, uh, not just during the primary, but into the election and even now, of the seeming di divide on the liberal left between Clinton supporters and Sanders supporters. A lot of what you've been uh, referencing with respect to globalization is something that Sanders has, has talked about. You published an article in The Nation in February titled, Which Women Support Hillary and Which Can't Afford To? that seems to enter this debate, or at least to shed light on its complexities and ambiguities. You note that for many people, especially many working women with um, white-collar jobs, uh, Clinton can and should be taken as a kind of role model. Uh, she has faced 
Sexism in a very public way has fought against it and has succeeded as a professional and indeed as a world leader. Yet you argue that the politics or policies Clinton would advance would actually hurt many women. Contrarily, you suggest that Sanders' policies might be better, especially for working class women. Could you, could you walk us through some of your thinking on this point and why ultimately would you have considered Sanders a better candidate for women in America and the poor? For sure. I mean, my broad, broad framework is that more women than men live in poverty, head up families in poverty, and women by and large actually have a tougher time of it in this country. Um, you know, working more tipped jobs, for example, um, where you're unlikely to be unionized and you can't count on your salary and you can't get pregnancy leave, all these things. So my general framework is that the more redistributive candidate is better for women. Um, and Sanders was certainly that, both on questions of what the minimum wage should be um, and on, for example, advocating single-payer health care and a number of other things on which he disagreed with Clinton. Clinton has a very mixed record when it comes to these things. I think if you are a white-collar woman who has struggled with sexism, especially if you're a writer or blogger, you're on the internet and you're getting all sorts of hateful sexist internet trolls, you look at Hillary and her toughness in the face of all of these crazy sexist attacks and you're like, that's my woman. Like, I respect that. I want to be like that. And it's time we elevated someone like that. And I totally get that. I think in my story, the other people I spoke to were the nurses. So I talked to someone in the National Nurses Union, which had endorsed Bernie Sanders, and they're like, look, you know, we see every day people come in for medical care and they can't afford it. The first question they ask on the table is, what is this going to cost? We've been fighting for a single payer forever um, and for better protections for workers. And Bernie Sanders is totally committed to those things. So. For us, it's a no-brainer. And I was like, well, don't you want to see a woman president? She's like, yeah, I guess, but you know, I wish she supported right. those policies. Right. So I think that there are some more complicated ways of thinking about who the best candidate for women is. Mm. And looking back at Hillary Clinton's support for cutting welfare, especially, which she continued to say had been a success, even as a senator, not just when her husband was president. Um, those are very concerning things in electing a president who's going to have to look after the best interests of a nation of women whose well-being has been declining since 2008. So then, strategically then, as well as perhaps philosophically, what should liberals and particularly Clinton supporters take or learn uh, from this election? How do they need to change in order to challenge Trump in the coming months as well as in the next four years? Well, we can see in the United States and globally, there is a clear desire for a sort of populist candidate and for more dramatic economic change. And this desire has been taken up by the right more strongly than by the left. So in the US, you know, Trump represented that desire. We may not like it and he may be a terrible person, <laughs> but he certainly represented that desire to sort of shake up a seemingly corrupt elite and get both more democracy and more um, sort of economic control. Um, and we could delve into the actual demographics of the Trump voter, which are not just poor. They're actually 
largely not poor mm -hmm. and sort of more middle class and worried about different things. But in the UK, you saw this with Brexit, right? And in multiple places, US, UK, several European countries, there's also a left populist alternative, Bernie Sanders, Corbyn, um, but they tend to get shut down actually by the left of center party. So Corbyn has had to struggle to maintain his position as labor leader, even though the mass of labor members support him, other labor politicians don't and want to oust him. In this case, we saw, you know, the DNC, um, not totally unreasonably, clearly thought they had their candidate, Hillary, and were really irritated to have mm. to deal with a sort of populist challenger and move to sort of as much as they could just smooth this process over and make it go away, which I think was actually to the detriment of the Democratic Party. So what you want, I think, is if you're a Hillary supporter, for example, is to think like, okay, so we don't want the right representing this populist feeling. We definitely want the left to. So who are our candidates? What are the policies? How do we get in line with that kind of energy and make that work for us and really, really listen to what people are saying, what they're saying they want. So I'm, I'd like to ask a bit about some of the debates then that are going, since you're so alive to them, that are going sort of inside the left right now and inside the sort of liberal, um, liberal left wing of the Democratic Party. So one point is that a lot has been said uh, much has been debated in magazines, on TV and on Twitter, uh, about the ostensible differences between so-called class politics and identity politics, as if these are always two completely separate concepts. Mark Lillo recently authored a piece in the Times called The, Ident the End of Identity Liberalism, in which he argued that, quote, in recent years, American liberalism has slipped into a kind of moral panic about racial, gender, and sexual identity that has distorted liberalism's message and prevented it from becoming a unifying force capable of governing. So what's your take on this reading of contemporary liberal liberalism? I would love to know what era of liberalism he's talking about when he says it used to exist without identity. It's a totally ahistorical argument. I mean, liberalism has always sort of manufactured itself around who it sees as the polity, right? So you can have a time when largely like white propertied men voted. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you'd be hard pressed to say that that was an era without identity, right? And we've had iterations of it ever since. Um, even once um, everybody who's a citizen over 18 could vote, Obviously, you have all sorts of advantages and disadvantages that work out along gender lines, um, racial lines, class lines, um, that require remedies that are specific to those oppressions. Now, I think of that as the process of making the country better. Mm -hmm. If he sees that as a problem, I'm not sure what he's aiming for. This debate does seem to have some legs on the left. Why do you think that is? What would be your response to it? Do you, a lot of people seem to think he has a point. Why do you think a lot of people think think he has a point? It's a really great question. I think that... So, 
I think being on the left is actually difficult because we care about difference and we care about unifying a really large number of people in order to gain the policies and the power that we need. So on the right, right, you have money. There are a lot of money on the right. On the left, you just have people, right? Now, the Democratic Party may have large donors, and I mean, there are lots of criticisms to be made around the Democratic Party, but on the left, you're obligated to get together all of these people who often don't have a lot in common, you know, like you have the white working class, you have an immigrant woman in New York, I mean, you've got everybody. This is really hard to reconcile. And so I think a lot of people want to go back to a time when it felt like you didn't have to reconcile those things. Like we were successful in the past, what were we doing then? Well, maybe we weren't making such a big deal out of everybody's identities when we know that's not really the way that history works, right? And I will say, I mostly see these arguments coming from white men, mm -hmm. which should tell you something, not that white men never know what they're talking about, but rather that it would be very difficult for anyone whose identity is not the assumed neutral norm to conceivably make this argument. All politics are identity politics, so are Mark Lillis. So, so, so you're, you're associated not just with the left generally, uh, but with a kind of socialism that's emerging today particularly among young writers and intellectuals at, at publications like Jacobin, Dissent, The Nation, and The New Inquiry. Do you call yourself a socialist? If so, what does that term mean or what could it mean today in your view and how is it different from the liberalism that we've been talking about? Yeah, so I do call myself a socialist and I think of it as a way of extending democracy actually. So. We believe in democracy at the ballot box, everyone gets to say. For some reason, we don't believe in it at work, in the economy, even though that's where we spend a large part of our lives. And so one thing that I like to think about is how that could change, how the economy could work for and be governed by everybody. And also something that I think doesn't get enough play is even democracy as it exists now is actually really difficult to participate in with this level of economic inequality. Mm -hmm. So even if we had better campaign finance reform, which we should definitely have, um, rich people still control a lot of media, a lot of important institutions, cultural institutions. There isn't real equality of discourse as long as there is extreme inequality. And so I think that's really important to think about on a democracy level. So I think my the way I think of socialism being different from liberalism primarily is that liberalism tends to be about equal opportunity, right? Everybody should be able to compete in some sort of meritocratic system, which will sort the wheat from the chaff and so forth. Um, and I actually believe in a more equal distribution of outcome. So, so I think, I think it's been shown that a lot of young people, especially a lot of millennials, would be very attracted to what you're describing. Still, the term socialism has a history in, in the U.S. and we're living ah, in post it? exactly <laughs> post Cold War America. So, how do you respond? Because you must have had must have to respond to this all the time. How do you respond to the prevailing attitude uh, that socialism is essentially Marxism and that Marxism will always lead to tyranny? I mean, capitalism's not doing great, 
But I, so I only get this question from older people actually, mm. which mm. is really interesting because <laughs> I think um, my experience has been that people my age, um, they came of political consciousness after the Cold War, after 89, and they came to political consciousness around the time of the Wall Street crash. So people are not afraid of like socialism taking their stuff. They're mm -hmm. worried about Wall Street taking their stuff. You know, their families very likely suffered. They probably entered a bad job market. So for millennials, the sort of stigma attached to socialism is not really there. What they've experienced is capitalism working extremely poorly for them. I think when I talk with older people, I mean, it's important for me to think through, obviously, that we're talking about a sort of small d democratic socialism and to not allow a direct mapping of bad systems from history onto the American present. So you co-edited um, a collection of essays uh, titled The Future We Want, Radical Ideas for the New Century with Bhaskar Sankara. You wrote the introduction to that collection, and in it you have this, I think, really powerful paragraph uh, that I'll read to you. So, quote, uh, We were told that in the knowledge economy, good jobs followed higher education. Well, there are few jobs, and we lock ourselves into miserable ones as quickly as possible to feed the loan sharks. The magazine writers who report on self-indulgent 20-somethings think Time's Me, Me, Me generation cover as well as the well-meaning guidance counselors who coach kids to invest in themselves, they should save their breath. You don't need a college course to know when you're getting screwed." End quote. This, this election could be understood, and we've been talking about this perhaps as a repudiation of center-leftism or of the establishment, uh, but I think it's, it's got to be true, uh, based in part on how much that paragraph must resonate with a lot of young people that plenty of millennials will continue to look for alternatives to the current political establishment. Some of the alternatives are the ones you're describing. Do you think then that a good chunk of America might move significantly leftward once the millennial generation truly comes of age? Yeah, there's a giant divide in this last election by generation, right? Trump's voters are largely older. I don't think that will be uniform, of course. You can't just rely on demographics. But yeah, actually, I think that my generation is pretty open to left ideas that were considered outside of the realm of possibility just, you know, five or 10 years ago, which actually makes me pretty hopeful. So, so, so the, the collection is, isn't just an assortment of essays uh, written by people left of center. Rather, it seems to advance a kind of programmatic socialist vision for American politics in the 21st century. How is producing this kind of collection different from just getting writers together to kind of examine whatever they want? Uh, so, so what are the difficulties and opportunities of the kind of movement-making work that you're trying to do? Yeah, well, I'm glad it read that way. That was the intention. It's not academic for us. These are real problems that we face. And for us, it was really important to explore for ourselves and also offer to a reader ways in which the vision that we had and the broad idea of socialism would apply to all of the relevant spheres of daily life. And obviously we could not hit every sphere of daily life, but we wanted to show, for example, um, 
you know, socialism is an old idea. Global warming is new. What do they have yeah. to do with each other? Yeah. And so we have this chapter on the environment that's really great by Alyssa Badastoni, where she explores how we might reduce emissions in a way that was actually also redistributive because the average coal miner does not own, you know, a power plant. They're just doing their job, right? And so when we get rid of the things we need to get rid of in order to not melt the world down, uh, that guy needs a job. And we saw that in this election, right? None of the coal miners in West Virginia want to vote for Hillary Clinton because she said she'd get rid of their jobs. That's not an unreasonable position for them, even if broadly speaking, we think it's wrong. So how do we fix that sort of conundrum? And she lays out a sort of plan or an idea by which you could essentially pay them not to do that work. And it, it involves sort of a basic income and she has some different ideas about how it might work while putting those bad plants and so forth out of business. So, so the movement on the left with which you're generally associated is, is pretty young. That is, a lot of young people are involved. A lot of the writers and uh, contributors to the collection you co-edited are quite young. So in that sense, it's, it's got to be forward-looking, and since you're uh, engaging with the issue of climate change, it's obviously very much so. Still, there must be a common tradition on the left with which you and your peers identify and from which you draw inspiration and, I guess, a kind of guidance. Are there certain core figures that you hold up as historical standard bearers and examples? So uh, someone... On the right, I was just recently talking to sort of held Edmund Burke up as this example. Uh, what yeah. a guy. Yeah, so, so who do you consider your influences then? Oh, that's such a hard question. I have a lot of different influences, and I don't know if I could name mm. one in that way. You, you uh, recently published an interview, I can't recall. Oh, Anne but, Snittap? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I've focused a lot on feminism, you know, as much as I have socialism and certainly the relationship between the two. I did just publish this long interview with Anne Snittow, who was an original member of Red Stockings, the radical women's group in New York, and a really amazing feminist who has both been an activist and at the same time really pioneered a women's studies program at the New School in New York. And after 89, went to Poland and sort of around Eastern Europe and would send feminist books to groups of women there and then would go and teach courses about feminism and really build this bridge between New York and various places in Poland that was sort of extraordinary. And she still does that. And what I take from Anne is she's immensely creative in how she attacks a problem. So say the problem's patriarchy. You know, she's teaching, she's acting, she's going abroad, she's bringing ideas back. And she has remained extremely generous and open-hearted and open-minded as younger generations come up. She's really interested in what they're doing. She wants to bring them in. And that is something that I would certainly aspire to. I think a big challenge right now actually is connecting the older generation of really pioneering, amazing political activists and thinkers with this younger generation. I think none of us want to pretend that we came up with all these ideas, right? It would A, be ridiculous, but B, a lot of these ideas just aren't that new, you know? Um, we are sort of 
updating them, I hope. But we owe real intellectual debt and we are interested in and admiring of the people to whom we owe that debt and want them to come and be part of whatever we're doing. And many of them are interested in that. And there's not like a vitriolic generational divide in this sort of new socialist young left. There's sort of the opposite. So I, I guess I'll ask then, so when you were growing up, did you have any major influences? I, I, so I'll, I'll, I'll ask this way. Where did you grow up and go to school? And when did you come into a kind of political consciousness? Sure. I was born in Michigan. I moved around. I largely grew up in the suburbs of Massachusetts. And when I was in seventh grade, Bush stole the election from Gore. And I guess I was 12, but it seemed really unfair. And I got really angry about it and started reading the news all the time and became sort of a serious Democrat, actually, and was one up through my early years in college, you know, maybe a year and a half in. And I took democratic politics very seriously. I worked at the Democratic National Convention in Boston in high school. I saw Obama give that first historic floor speech when he was, you know, before he had State really Senator, made it. Right? Uh huh. Yeah. And I just came to feel that the Democrats didn't really appear to mean anything they said, and you know, they said they were for redistribution and getting rid of inequality, but everything they suggested seemed so pathetic. <laughs> and, you know, I, it just started to not make sense to me. And so I started casting around for other ways of thinking, honestly, in a college kind of way. And I ended up at Descent Magazine doing an internship, you know, a really sort of um, long-standing pillar of left thought. And you know, that was really a training in socialism and uh, intellectual thought, and it made a huge difference to me. And at the same time in college, I was reading, I did read Marx as part of our curriculum. And at the same time, I was studying with Barbara Fields, who wrote an incredible analysis of race from a Marxist perspective that to me just explained how race works in America better than anything I had mm. ever read. And I thought, well, if she's using like Marxist tools to get to this analysis, I want to understand that because this is better than anything I've ever read. And so the combination of sort of like politics out in the world and politics in the academy um, kind of got me thinking on this path. Can you, can you recall them? Um a moment or a general year perhaps of political disillusionment where you sort of differentiated yourself from liberalism of the Democratic Party? Yeah, it would have had to be like 2007 or 8. Mm. I mean, with Obama, I think I went out once and door knocked for him. I obviously voted for him. But I did not at that point think he was going to save us or anything like that and was sort of baffled by the degree to which people thought that was true. So the, the Chronicle of Higher Education recently cited you, among uh, some other young writers, as a, quote, new intellectual, part of this group. We've of... made it. <laughs> exactly. So, so this term, uh, I have a few questions about that. Uh, first, this term 
intellectual is interesting. So often, I think it's used to refer to a kind of armchair critic or a kind of tweedy philosopher. Uh, but so much of your writing seems rather different than that. Uh, for, for one, it's, it's rarely about any kind of free-floating idea, but almost always linked to or about material and political realities. The, the needs and desires of groups of people, the power that they have, don't have, or could have. And this is what we've been talking about this whole time. So, so what does it then mean, or what does it mean to you to be a responsible intellectual, uh, one who is alive to the needs of real people? Sure. Well, I went to dissent because I was political, not because I want to work in publishing per se, not that there's anything wrong with that, but that that's just who I am. I'm a political person and political questions really drive the questions that I want to ask and think about and what I read. So for me, I mean, there's no that's why I write, is to figure that stuff out, or try, if I think I've figured it out hubristically enough, try to persuade other people. You know, I think it's, I've never understood the idea of just being an intellectual. I'm not even sure what that means necessarily, but the one thing that came up in the Chronicle piece was sort of that same question. And I felt very strongly, you know, when we went, when I went to dissent, and there are some other young people there too, um, we really went there because we believed in this politics and these ideas, and we thought that they should be useful to people, mm -hmm. even if there wasn't a big audience then. And there was a sort of feeling like we were keeping the flame or something. And then when Occupy happened, an entire constituency emerged and people seemed interested in ideas about socialism and you know all of a sudden like people want to go back and read essays from 1985 about market socialism mm -hmm. and you know like we were ready for that and so there's no way we could have predicted that like we didn't go to dissent to like get famous to be, to <laughs> you know? the new intellectuals. yeah not really <laughs> But we're really excited that those ideas became useful again. They were made useful by people doing stuff. And then, you know, that's a constituency that feeds back and forth. Hopefully we can offer them something. So, Sarah, I know I have to let you go in a couple minutes here, but I'll just ask briefly. So, given the recent uh, election, what are your plans, if you have any, as a writer and thinker, on the left for, say, the next couple of years, the next four years. So what are your hopes for your own writing and your own political work, as well as generally for the left? Ooh, big question. Yes. Um, so you get the minutes. future of the left yeah. in two minutes. Okay. <laughs> well, so there are a lot of social movements on the ground that have been rolling since well before Trump, right? Defending First Amendment rights, defending the rights of Muslims, expanding the franchise, fighting for $15, all of those things. And I think it's important to use the Trump era to get everyone behind their work and try to unite those movements as much as possible. So Obama deported, I think, two and a half million people over the course of his term. But people are only freaking out about it now because Trump's doing it. So, you know, A, this is a time to get people who weren't paying attention before on board with fighting deportations and so forth. And B, you know, it's going to be a period of sort of direct action. Like, do we have to hide people? Like, are we going to join sanctuary movements? How is that going to work? A question that looms really large for 
me and thinking about, and there are lots of people working on these issues too, is a sort of gender question. Mm -hmm. So half, over half of white women voted for Trump, and everyone was shocked by that. But the fact is that over half of white women have been voting for every Republican since forever. And actually, the gender divide was actually a bit wider on Trump. But that's a really interesting question. Like, that's a constituency that, to my mind, is voting in ways that might hurt their health, mm -hmm. in ways that certainly hurt health for the rest of us, but that is also vulnerable to a lot of the things that Trump is pushing. So, for example, I think universal childcare is something that would benefit women left, right, and center. Like, why isn't that more of an issue? And what Trump and Ivanka are offering is like a terrible plan. But I think that thinking creatively about those constituencies right now is really important and actually really fascinating, too. There's actual work to be done there. So, Sarah, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. That was Sarah Leonard senior editor at The Nation, and co-editor of The Future We Want, Radical Ideas for a New Century. To read Sarah's work, check out The Nation magazine's website, thenation.com. Just recently, Sarah published a long and fascinating interview with feminist intellectual Anne Snittow, which is well worth a read. Sarah's introduction to Radical Ideas for a New Century is also available on The Nation's website under the title, My Generation's Best Chance is Socialism. Finally, I really encourage you to check out an article recently published by the Chronicle of Higher Education titled The New Intellectual. Sarah Leonard is profiled in that article along with some other young writers and thinkers on the left. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Louise Whitney. Rachel Bills and Kadar Jabbar edit the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. For more information about Ralph and our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at Joe Hogan CGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this has been Common Ground. <laughs>